Good afternoon, Trinity Park Church. I'm Joe Jackson, and we get the privilege of worshiping together again, um, both for those that are here. Um, we're going to stand in just a moment and worship together, and for those who are joining online, um, I want to invite you to consider Psalm 11. Um, we're going to use this as our call to worship. Um, and as we prepare to worship our Heavenly Father, just, just to remind you, our order of service can be found in the church app or at trinityparkchurch.org. God does offer us living waters, and so we come in worship this afternoon. We stoop down, we drink in light of the love that Jesus Christ has demonstrated to us. So let's look together first at Psalm 11. We've got seven verses here, and this is our call to worship. In these first three verses, we see David find himself in the midst of a deep crisis, and his natural response is to flee or to retreat. And he asks this question, what are the righteous to do when our foundations are being destroyed. And then we see the response in those final four verses where he looks to God and he sees God, the righteous judge, who both tests the righteous but also abhors the wicked. So as I read these words, I want to invite you to stand um, and hear God's word for us today. Beginning in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then here's the response. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Let's cling to that promise that we see as the end. Those who trust in the Lord, the righteous, they will behold his face. They will be with God forever. Would you bow your heads and pray with me now? Lord God Almighty, thank you for giving us another opportunity to stand in your presence and to sing boldly of the truths that you have demonstrated to us. I pray, God, that like David, we would not flee, but we would instead look to the heavens to see you as the God who is seated on high, reigning on his throne, ruling over all creation. And I pray even now as we sing of how you bid us to come, remind us, O oh God, that it is the righteous, it is those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ that will not be put to shame, who will see your face forever. So help us now as we worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's lift our voices together as Jesus says, Come unto me and rest.
hidden in you, that nothing will separate us from your great love. So Lord, would you help us now as we sing how you will hold us fast. When I fear my faith would fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. 
God, you will keep us until the end. It is your face that we will behold. Let's sing it once more. He will hold me fast. Just our voices. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Amen. Hello, Trinity Park. Uh, in, in a moment, I'll invite you to read out loud with me our corporate confession of sin. Uh, it's in your bulletin or in the app. Uh, we'll print it on the, uh, on the website if you have that. But as I do, uh, I'd like for you to remember that all the benefits that we have in Jesus come when we repent and receive Jesus. That's when we get those benefits. So it's our pleasure and it's our, um, our relief to be able to confess these things to Jesus, knowing that we have forgiveness, and, uh, and after that I'll, I'll offer an assurance of pardon and grace. So read with me. Holy God, we open our hearts to you this day and offer the truth of our lives that fear often stifles us, the prejudice that blind, binds us, the ignorance that hobbles us, the doubt that plagues us, Help us, we pray, that we will find courage in unlikely places. See the world with new and gracious eyes. Move to those places where love is needed. Have faith that you are with us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to take just a moment to consider how these words are true for you, and, and after that I'll offer words of assurance of pardoning grace. So hear these words from Galatians chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this time we're going to have an offering song, and, and I'd invite you to take this time to uh, either through the app or uh, online through our website to give back to God what he has been so generous to give to us. And, and we do thank you for your generosity to Trinity Park. Let's join together as we sing, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Jesus and to take him at his word 
just to rest upon his promise and to know the saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, Just to trust his cleansing love And in simple faith to plunge me Neath the healing cleansing flood Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him How I prove him all and all Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus Hello, Trinity Park. It's a little loud there. Um, it's good to see you today. I just wanted to follow up on my sermon, the first sermon of the year, where we're entering into our Equip series. wanted to highlight a few opportunities we have coming up for you guys really soon. As soon as tomorrow night, we have a seminar Wes Tubel is going to put on for us called Following Christ and Social Media. It's going to be tomorrow night at 8 o'clock on Zoom. And I played golf with Wes yesterday, and we didn't talk about this the whole time, but we did talk about the seminar, and there's some great things uh, that he has planned. We're going to have a lot of time for Q&A as well, where Wes and I are going to be able to answer some of your questions or try to about uh, how to use social media, both redemptively um, and also how to be aware of how maybe social media can push us in some wrong directions sometimes as well. Um, also, after that, on January the 31st, the next step in our Equip series is going to be something that Olivia and I mainly, also with Claire Hine a little bit, he's going to help us. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a four-part series on building spiritual friendships. Um, it could also be called demystifying discipleship or mentoring. So it's four sessions. Uh, we're going to walk through basically how do you get started in discipleship. That's the first session. What are some barriers 
to discipleship. That's the second session. The third session is going to be how do you equip yourself with some tools for discipleship. And then the fourth one is how do you go ahead and launch out into those discipleship relationships. And uh, Olivia and I have been planning that together, and I think that's going to be really fun for us to do together. And for anyone leading a community group or um, if you're in, in any kind of leadership position or you aspire just to walk alongside someone else, no matter what station you're at in life, uh, it would be a great thing for you uh, to take uh, part in. Uh, then the final uh, highlight I want to give to you is Pastor Willie uh, from Mount Zion Church. Pastor Willie, as their senior pastor, he's a godly man. Um, we were chatting on Facebook today. I had the opportunity to pray during a March for Unity uh, with Dr. Martin Luther King weekend uh, this morning, and, and Pastor Willie and I were Facebooking back, back and forth, and he's going to serve our congregation uh, on February the 10th, which is a Wednesday night, by teaching us on a Zoom seminar how to pray uh, according to one of the great prayers of the Bible. And the one we've, we've kind of worked with them on picking is, how do you pray in times of suffering? How do you trust God in times of suffering in your prayer life? And so we have three upcoming opportunities back to back to back that I hope you'll take advantage of. Uh, we're also going to have a, a prayer seminar on uh, praying for the Muslim world as well. That'll be coming up in March. So a lot of opportunities for you to be equipped. This is an interesting time. I was talking to Joe before the service. This is the seventh location that we've led worship from in the last calendar year. Um, it's amazing how many different steps we've had to take. It's great that we have technology. These things will be happening through Zoom. So uh, you don't have to figure out where we're meeting. If it's indoors or outdoors, you can just turn it on in your kitchen or in your living room and join us in a Zoom seminar to be equipped. Thank you. Please, please pray with me. Father of love in heaven, we are thankful for the grace and mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. You have made us sons and daughters not because we have done good works or come to church or watched a live stream of church, but because you are merciful. And your mercy came at great cost, not to us, but to you. You gave your only son Jesus to die an unjust death so that through him our sins against you are forgiven. So it is in the power of your love for us and the Holy Spirit that now lives in us that we come to you with our prayers and our songs. Father, you tell us in 1 Peter 4 to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, this is a hard time, Father. We have been through almost a year of a pandemic, and our relationships are strained. We often fold under this pressure. And when we do, we deny the image of God in our brothers and sisters by failing to bear their burdens, dismissing them because of their political or pandemic convictions. But you have not left us helpless. You have put your Holy Spirit into everyone who calls on Jesus. So we can ask, and we do ask, that you forgive our prejudiced thoughts and words, our hatred of those who think differently, and by the Holy Spirit, soften our hearts toward one another. Father, you also tell us through Peter 
that we should show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, even if we cannot be hospitable by opening up our homes, Father, give us a sincere heart of love for each other so that our words to each other are hospitable, so that our thoughts about each other are hospitable, that we would sincerely love those who believe differently about us, about politics and pandemics, that we would also love those who care nothing about you, remembering that while we were sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly, that our grumbling would only be that we have to love each other from Zoom rather than in person or from six feet away rather than an embrace. And Father, I especially ask for peace in our country. This weekend, we remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., not only because of the good work he did working for racial equality, but also because that work is still needed. So, Father, would you root out this sin of partiality that still exists in our hearts? Help us to love one another earnestly, to commit to forgiving sins, and to show hospitality to one another, and to willingly empathize with and bear the burdens of others. I pray for this week, our country, when a new president is inaugurated. I pray for peace in Washington, D.C., and in our state capitals, and in our communities. I ask for the safety and protection of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and congressional leaders and law enforcement and all of whom, all of whom are under threat. And I ask that those who want and are planning violence and chaos would be prevented from the harm they intend and face the consequences of their actions. Father, we know, but we sometimes forget that our president is not our savior. Father, our first allegiance is to King Jesus, who alone died for our sins and was raised and now sits at your right hand, interceding for us. So with confident hope, we look forward to that day that he returns when every knee will bow at his name. And until then, give us patience and forbearance with each other, not forgetting the hope to which you have called us. Peter also said that each has received a gift so that we should use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And rather than waiting for our return, rather than waiting for our lives to return to the way it was, help us to be good stewards of your varied grace where we are. At Trinity Park, we have pastors and scientists and teachers and mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, friends. You have given each of us different roles in your kingdom, and all of these roles require the gift of your grace. Help us to serve in these roles by the strength that you supply, so in order that in everything you may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A reading from Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, 
Is it not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to do this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. There they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. All right, it's good to see y'all again. Uh, this morning we're in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Um, as Richard prayed, and as we've alluded to already in the service, uh, this is a time when we feel like, as we talked about in our call to worship in Psalm 11, where the foundations of our lives sometimes are being shaken. Uh, we're a year into a pandemic almost, and events in our country have made us wonder what we can depend on. Uh, we've, Like I said, we've worshipped in a lot of different places, and life has changed a lot. So in times like this, where do we put our hope? Well, David faced a time like this in Psalm 11. That's why we included it in our call to worship. And his advisors were telling him to flee out of the city, flee like a bird to the mountains. And David was tempted to follow the advice of these men. But before he did that, he took a moment and he found his hope in the living God. It says there in verse 4 in the call to worship that he turned his eyes to the temple of God, to the holy temple of God in heaven. He said, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Before David runs for the hills, which we all may be tempted to run in this time, may be tempted to run in directions, to listen to voices, to follow movements that we might not normally follow, to, to fall into traps of believing things that we might not be normally susceptible to. In a time like this, when we question, are we going to be safe? Is our health safe? Is our country safe? Is my, are my finances safe? There's a real temptation for us to want to flee. But before we do that, or actually you should never do that, but before you leave, before you leave God's throne room and listen to his voice, you need to take just a moment and you need to ask yourself the question, who am I listening to? Who am I listening to? Who is my king? What, who is God? What matters right now most of all? Has what matters most of all actually changed? And the answer to that question David found and we would find is no. One woman put it this way, she said, at some point, to say relevant things, we must speak of eternal things. I love that quote. At some point, to say relevant things, we must speak of eternal things. Because at some point, everything in this world is going to go away. Everything we know is going to change. But one thing will never change, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ seated on his throne and we have to put our hope in him. And if you want the ultimate relevant message, it is this. 
that God is eternal and he loves you and he has you. He is a firm foundation for you and for me in this time. The character of God is the anchor for our souls, not the stability of America, not the stability of our health or the health of our loved ones or the stability of our economy. When the foundations are shaken, we need to ask ourselves, who is God and what matters to God? And in this passage, in these seven verses, we find three things that matter to God. They matter to God in Acts, and they matter to God today. And we need to remember these three, three priorities for the church, no matter what the culture is saying to us from an extrinsic perspective. We don't want to be pulled in the direction of culture without asking the question, what does God's word say? We need to be motivated intrinsically from God's word and hold on to God's word no matter what God's word says and how that lines up today. So the first thing that matters to God that we find here in this passage is in verse 1. We find that cultural, socioeconomic, and generational unity matters in the church. Cultural, socioeconomic, and generational unity matters in the church. The first essential of the church that's being attacked is the unity of the church that is evidenced in the gospel. And we find this in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So any commentary, doesn't matter which one you read, will tell you that the, the situation in which this text was written, there was cultural, socioeconomic, and generational disunity in the church that was a threat to the gospel if it was not addressed within the church. Hellenists refers to bicultural Jews. This is Jews who, they hadn't stayed at home, but they had moved out and they had started to engage with the culture around them a little bit. And they had taken on elements of Greek culture, Greek language. You have this Hellenist group that is a bicultural group, a little bit more cosmopolitan. They've moved out of the city a little bit. Or they've had a little more exposure. And then you have the, the Jews or the Hebrews who were basically monocultural. They spoke Aramaic. They were very comfortable in Jerusalem. That was their hometown. And you had this emerging group of people in the church represented in these groups. Now, the original 12 apostles, most of them, uh, they were all Jews, and most of them were not bicultural. Most of them were monocultural. They were Hebrew. They were Aramaic-speaking. They were the leaders of the church. And so there was a key question that emerges here. It's key because if they don't answer this question well, and not just theologically, but practically, we don't have a church in Cary, North Carolina today. If the church doesn't expand beyond Jewish culture, or Hebrew culture in this case, then we don't have a cross-cultural gospel. We don't have a gospel that extends out beyond Jerusalem. You see, what was threatened last week that I talked about is you had the threat of hypocrisy, you had the threat of bad theology, and you had the threat of persecution. And today you have the threat of the gospel not crossing cultural and socioeconomic and generational barriers, and it has to be solved by the church. The growth of the church is exciting, but it often brings challenges for us. It brings challenges, it brings growing pains as it expands across cultural boundaries. In order for the gospel to cross cultural boundaries, one group has to be willing to give up 
something in order for it to be- the gospel to become enculturated into another culture. The gospel can remain distinctive and not lose its core message, but it can be transitioned into other cultures without losing what is core to it. And that's something that's, that's different about Christianity from other world religions. The gospel can be enculturated around the world without losing the, the kernel, the core, of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So a few key questions that are answered here about addressing ethnic and economic barriers in the church in these seven verses are this. Is it appropriate at times to identify a person or a group on the basis of their ethnic or cultural identity? According to to 6.1, Acts 6.1, it is appropriate at times to identify groups based on their culture or based on their socioeconomics. Is the church called to be cross-cultural? Well, if the church is in a cross-cultural community, then the church is called to be cross-cultural as much as possible. Now, there are some situations where really what you have in, in, a, in a society is a monocultural society, and therefore the gospel just needs to reflect the community that it is being planted in. But if the gospel is in a diverse society, then it should be reflected in a cross-cultural church as much as possible. Another question we have answered here is, should churches acknowledge that cultural and ethnic barriers exist when those barriers do exist and then seek to address those barriers with the gospel? That is the, that's the core of the question here. There is a, a problem that has arisen in the community because two groups that are different culturally from one another cannot get along. And in order to solve that problem with the gospel, you have to identify the problem. You have to identify that the problem here is along cultural lines, and they have to figure out a way as leaders to build unity in the church across cultural and socioeconomic and generational lines. So how big of an emphasis does the New Testament put on Ending partiality, that's a biblical word that actually James uses. James was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And James became, who wrote James, the epistle of James, he became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. So what James has to say really matters for us. And in James chapter 2, James writes, and that entire chapter is about showing partiality in the church. Uh, That's another word we might say, we don't use the word partiality that often, we use the word discrimination. Uh, Showing discrimination in the church along ethnic or or cultural or socioeconomic lines, that's something that James talked about a lot. Right before he talks about that in chapter 2, he in in chapter 1 verse 28 says that the measure of true religion is this, it is taking care of widows and orphans and keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. Why do you think the pastor of the church at Jerusalem might have written this in James 1.28 and then in chapter 2 about this ending discrimination in the church? It's because he, as the pastor, walked through this moment in Acts chapter 6 and probably other moments like it, and he saw that the gospel was at stake. James, the pastor of Jerusalem, he is famous for writing very practical things, sometimes things that are, are hard for us to read, about how we need to match our faith with works that follow Christ. Those works don't come because we need God to give us grace. They come, those works come because we have already received God's grace. And James said, because we have received God's grace, we need to end 
disunity or discrimination along cultural lines in the church. And this matters to God. It matters to Jesus Christ. You know, back in 1997, long before 2021 came here, um, I received a call from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit in my heart, that I wanted to see the church in America change. I felt like the Lord just impressed upon my heart. Um, I'm not sure if I had heard Dr. King's words by that time or not, but I realized as a man, as a young man growing up in the South, that the most segregated hour of America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. And it, you didn't need to hear from Dr. King for that to be true. It just is true. But Dr. King pointed it out. He pointed out that something that's very clear. And that was a burden for me growing up in the Deep South. And so God put on my heart that the church in America needed to change, that we needed to begin to reflect the actual people who lived in this country as our, as our country was changing. But I have to admit, I had no idea what it meant for the gospel to cross cultures. And so God, even though he'd put a call in my heart to, to see the Church of America engage with these questions and change over time, the Lord surprisingly called me to China. And as I uh, went to China, and eventually I married Olivia, and we went back to China, I had to learn how to separate out my personal values and my cultural values as an American from what it meant to preach the gospel, from what it meant to, to take the gospel and extend it into the world. In order to go to China, interestingly, uh, when I was on staff with Crew, they assigned us to go through cross-cultural training in Bakersfield, California for seven weeks at an African-American church where we lived and worked among an African-American community. Now, you may say, what does working with a black church have to do with going to China and being a missionary? Well, I had that question too. And what they're trying to teach you is that in order to be an effective missionary, you have to be able to take the gospel and distinguish it from your own personal cultural values. Otherwise, you will be exporting your own Americanness, your own whatever culture you're from. Or if you're from another culture, you'll be exporting your own Koreanness or your own Germanness or whatever. And it will become confusing for the people that you're administering the gospel to because they don't know if they need to become an American or they need to become a Christian. And this became very clear for me. I was discipling a young, poor Chinese believer. This is a couple years later. I was discipling him, and he became a Christian, and we, we began to walk through the scriptures together. And one day he said to me, Corey, I need to ask you a question. In order for me to grow in Christ, do I need a palm pilot like you have? And, you know, you don't, you don't know what a Palm Pilot is. It's a precursor to an iPhone or something. It's, it's before the phone and the personal computer got united together in one beautiful device that now dominates our lives. But I had this Palm Pilot, and I was, you know, I was married to Olivia, but I was essentially married to my Palm Pilot. I, I love to manage my time. I had everything stored on my Palm Pilot. And every time I met with them, what did I do? I pulled out my Palm Pilot, and I was talking, okay, when are we going to meet next time, and what time, and where? And I was putting it all in there. And he literally, he was very serious. Do I need to, as a poor Chinese person, figure out a way to save up $300 to get a Palm Pilot so that I can grow in Jesus like you? And I just repented to him. And I said, man, I am so sorry that you got that impression from me. He, he actually thought that you needed to have money and you needed to be a good time manager you needed to be relentless about your schedule in order to grow in Jesus. Now, those are two, 
Those are two values that I brought in from America. For me, $300 Palm Pilot, no big deal. I didn't even think about it. Okay, cool. For me, managing my time, it is the air I breathe. You know, how many appointments can I have today and still and be as effective as possible? But that's not what he needed. And so I had, I had brought the gospel and my Americanness in that way together, and I needed to separate those out and teach him a gospel that was, that was devoid of my American cultural values as much as I possibly could. Later, I came back to uh, the United States, and I led summer projects, international summer projects for crew, and we would send out 74 summer projects a year to about 34 countries around the world. And I would lead trainings with other staff, and we would teach them that you needed to learn, if you're going to be a short-term missionary, you needed to learn how to love God, love your team, launch a movement, and learn a new world. And in learning a new world, we had to tell them, listen, a lot of you are going to go to countries where they don't like America. And, and if you go out there and what you're trying to take to them is your view of capitalism and your view of democracy or your view of whoever the current president is or whatever it is, it's actually going to be a stumbling block to the gospel. So don't lead, or in fact, don't even bring up these American cultural values, even if you believe in them and even if they're beautiful things that God has given America, okay? Don't bring that up because your goal is not to convert them to your political view, your view of economics. Your goal is to share the gospel with them so that they will know Jesus Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves the questions. This is not just missions 101, but this is Christianity 101. You know, Paul put it this way. He said in, in Philippians 3, he said, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And before that, he defined what profited him. He said he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He said he was the educated of the educated. He said he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He said that he was more righteous than almost anyone else. Of course, he's speaking in hyperbole. But what he meant is he was just trying to keep the law as much as he could. And he said all of that and all the trappings of who I am as Paul culturally, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them rubbish. And I can't even say what that word translates into in a sermon in America, but it's a bad word. I consider those things rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Because why? Because I want to be found in Christ. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may too gain the resurrection of the dead. And then he says, not that I have already obtained all this or been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What Paul's saying is that Jesus didn't take hold of me so that I could hold on to all those things that used to profit me before. He took hold of me so that I could strain forward, leaving those things behind, and I could embrace Jesus and I could become holy and I could have a new calling to follow him, to be made more like him, to share the gospel with other people. He said at another point in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. These are very challenging words for us to receive right now because our culture is telling us it's time for a battle. And that battle, you need to hang on to everything that you value about your culture or your politics or whatever you consider to be your American identity. And what the gospel is saying is that you need to whatever was to your profit, it doesn't matter what that is. Maybe you're not even from the United States. Maybe you're from another country. Maybe you have another cultural thing going on. 
But whatever that is, it doesn't matter. Whatever was to your profit, you now consider loss. So why? So that you can gain Christ, so that you can listen to him, and so that you can bring the gospel into the world. And that's what's going to be necessary in this church in Jerusalem. What's going to be necessary is that they follow the vision of Jesus in John 13, 35, when he says, the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And so for us today, in order to follow the words of Jesus, we're going to have to move out toward one another in love. And listen, why do we do this? What's the heart behind this? The heart behind this is because what if Christ had not loved you this way? What if Jesus had hung on to everything that profited him, and he had said, you know, I'm good. I think I'll stay in heaven and enjoy all this glory here without going through all the suffering of giving up all that that was in order to bring the gospel to you. And so we follow Christ. We follow Christ and we humble ourselves and we pursue one another in love, in humility, in grace, in repentance, in healing, in friendship. And that's what this church is going to need in Jerusalem in order to value what God values. So first of all, God values, and we need to hold on to this in our cultural moment, God values unity in the church across cultural, economic, and generational lines. And generational, I'll say, may be one of the most challenging things for us right now. It may be easier for us to cross cultural barriers. It may be easier for us to cross economic barriers. It may be harder for us to cross generational barriers. We need to listen to one another old and young. We need to come together. We're one body of Christ. So that's the first thing. The second thing that that matters to God that we need to, to hold on to in a moment when the foundations are shaken is the spoken word of the gospel. The spoken word of the gospel matters in the church. The essential of the gospel that's being attacked here is the verbal proclamation of the gospel. Listen, this situation that's going on in Jerusalem in the early church is really important. Let's not just theologize it. Widows were going hungry. That's not okay. There are people that don't have enough food. And that is, that is massive. And in order for that to be addressed, it, it was really important. So they have to address that situation. But what was really happening is it was putting pressure on the apostles so that they might be distracted from preaching the gospel in all of these different situations that they find themselves in. They needed to be able to continue to preach the gospel. Why? Well, it's the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be, to be brought into eternity. It's the only way to be forgiven of your sins. It's also the only way for the church to function and for the church to be continually reminded that we need to love one another. We need to lay down our rights. How are we going to address, how are people going to give up their their widows, their cultural widows, if you're a Hellenist, why are you going to give that up so that Jewish widows can be fed? If you're, if you're a Jew, why are you going to give up food so that Hellenist widows can be fed? The only way you're going to learn how to do that is if you're hearing the gospel regularly, because this is such a cross-cultural value, that you're going to give up your rights of, of your group so that other people can have what they need. Only Christ can teach us that. And if the apostles don't continue to preach the gospel the church is going to lose the power, the dynamic power through which people come to Christ and through which people can practice the gospel in community. And so you have James saying, true religion is found in taking care of widows and orphans and keeping yourself being polluted by the world. 
And this is important. It's important for the church. Before we get into the proclamation of the gospel, I just want to say that you can measure a society and the righteousness of a society by how well it takes care of its weakest members. You can measure the health or the righteousness of a church by how well it takes care of its weakest members. Are some people more dispensable because they don't have as much money or because maybe they're not as able in a certain area? In in a church, is it okay? Are are certain widows, in this case, going to be more dispensable than others? I mean, fundamentally, the gospel is at stake, and the disciples know it. And so the gospel needs to impact this situation. And so for our church, we need to recognize right now, even today, we were all set up outside, and it started snowing. And so we're like, what? It started snowing. Okay, so we're going to reset up in here. And as, you know, we have a trailer, we're unpacking it, we're trying to make this work. We're doing all kinds of things to make our church function and remain functional in the midst of a pandemic. Here we are a year in. There is no shortage of ways that we need people to serve to keep things going. We got teams meeting. We got finance teams. We got building teams for the new location. We got so many teams doing so many things. We got people bringing meals to each other. We're serving each other like crazy, and that's so important. But one thing we cannot forget to do One thing we must do and must do well all the time is we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, in the midst of all of the chaos of our lives, one thing that we've learned for sure is that we don't know how long we have to live. We don't know. We don't know how long our loved ones have to live. We don't know how long our neighbors have to live. We don't know. We can't take for granted the fragility of our lives. The gospel message that we have is the message that the world needs to know right now. Because at the end of of the day, after pandemics and after transitions in Washington, D.C., and after stimulus packages and what's going to happen to our economy and all of that, at the end of the day, you still have your sin and you still have your fears, you still have your shame. You still have to face the Lord Jesus when you die. And you still have to deal with that particular question that all human beings have to face. We must preach the gospel. We have the message of life for the world right now that the world needs to hear. And we can't be so busy doing everything else, which is important, really important. But we must focus on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not just here, I need to be able to do that, but you in your relationships, you're connected to people. We have to speak the message of the words of life to the world a few years ago, I was reading a story in World Magazine of an uh, apartment complex in the United States where a Burmese python, an eight-footer, got loose from its owner, and they didn't know where it was. It was a 57,000-square-foot apartment community. And so they sent out, can you imagine this HOA email that comes through? Hey, just wanted you guys to know, we've hired some plumbers to go through the plumbing system because we've lost a python. And there's a python loose. The name of the, of the python was Bessie. So Bessie's loose in the apartment complex. We don't know where the python is, and we're going to be looking for Bessie. And so you have this posse of plumbers going throughout all the infrastructure trying to find Bessie, the python. And about two weeks later, they find Bessie. And uh, Bessie had nestled herself up 
uh, in the ceiling in between, you know, in that, in that area between the ceiling and the pipes, right above where she, her master was. She had found her way almost back, but couldn't get back through the ceiling. My question is, once the plumbers found Bessie, what if they didn't bother to notify the residents of the building? What if they just decided, you know what, we're good. We found the python, we're out of here. How cruel would that be and to not share that message of good news, that message that the threat of ending your life is over? People had been saying, I've been looking under the sheets, looking under the bed every night before I go to bed. And when they found out that Bessie had been found, one resident put it simply, we'll be sleeping a lot better now. Our message of life is one that we need to share with the world. How cruel is it for us to know the message of Christ, and yet our neighbors who don't know Christ, who are worried in ways that we're worried, we have anxieties, but our ultimate anxiety has been taken away, which is when I stand before the Lord, do I have grace? Are my sins forgiven? Why don't we want to tell the world that message? That is the good news of the gospel. And in this life, in this, in this time when we're, we're aware that life expectancy, we're just not sure what that is. It may not be 80-something years old if you're an American. Are we going to tell other people the words of life? This is our moment. This is an important time. This is a time when people are open to hearing about the words of life in ways that they haven't been open in so long. Let's share the message of the good news with the world. We cannot become distracted. But how can we pull that off? How can we pull that off, especially this year when there's so much going on? Well, the third thing that the church values is meeting physical needs in Jesus' name. In the midst of everything that's going on in the world, we have to remember there has to be unity in the church. We have to remember we have to preach the gospel, the spoken word of the gospel, and we have to also meet physical needs in Jesus' name. At the end of the day in Jerusalem, they had to meet the physical needs. They had to meet the physical needs of these widows. They couldn't forget what brought them into this conversation that these two groups of widows didn't have adequate food. And so the apostles gather with the disciples and tell them, they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables. Now, the way that's translated into English, it sounds derogatory almost, like, like it was less than, that you would need to wait on tables while we have more important things to do. Well, that's not the case at all. This word, wait on tables, is the Greek word diakonia, which is where we get deacon. This is where you get the, the understanding of what the office of deacon is. The first deacons in the scripture are appointed here in Acts chapter 6. The deacons are appointed for a very important reason. The disciples simply could not, the apostles simply could not take care of this incredibly important need in the way it needed to be taken care of. You're talking about hundreds of widows who did not have enough food. There needed to be organization. There needed to be cultural barriers broken down. There needed to be regularity of service. There needed to be management of resources. There needed to be so much that was done here. And the apostles wisely said, we can't do this. We don't have, not only do we not have the time, we don't have the time adequately to do this very important thing in the church because it matters in the church and it matters to Jesus. And so what did they do? They appointed seven Deacons, the first deacons. And these men, it looks like from their names, were all bicultural Hellenist men. 
Now, maybe not all of them, at least Stephen, at least Philip, and it looks like a lot of their names are more Greek than they are Hebrew. Now, what do we learn from that? What we learn is that the disciples realized that they needed to broaden the type of leaders that they had in the church. Not just because it was cool or it was a nice idea, and it was a cool way to engage culture. No, it's because these widows, half of them were different culturally than the other half, and they needed to have that represented in the leadership of the church. Why? In order to be able to meet the physical needs that were there, they needed not just new men who were spiritual and filled with the Spirit, which they definitely needed, but they needed these men to understand how to meet the need. And so they wisely call upon these seven men. One of them was Stephen, who I'll talk about extensively next week. Just a man of God. And there's a bit of a misnomer about elders and deacons. I just want to point this out to you. Yeah, elders are mainly called, I mean, elders kind of get their office deriving from the apostles, ultimately, even though we're different. Um, And elders are mainly called to take care of the ministry of the word. And deacons are mainly called to take care of ministries of deeds or works within the church. But uh, not so fast in your distinction because also elders are called to meet physical needs sometimes. It's not like we just get out of all of those responsibilities. And deacons at times, if you look at Acts chapter 7 when Stephen starts to preach, Deacons also can have a ministry of the word. I mean, Stephen was a heck of a a speaker and communicator of the gospel. And so we all need to be able to function in word and deed in the church. Even though we need to have these offices for the sake of not dropping the ball in different things that matter to God, we all both speak the words and do the deeds uh, as officers and then also in the church in general. And so what happens as a result of their collective leadership? In chapter 6, verse 7, it tells us that the word of God spread so that the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So as physical needs are being met, as the word continues to be preached in a way that is cross-cultural, crossing economic boundaries, in a way that's multi-generational, the number of disciples increases rapidly. And then I find this just beautiful at the end of verse 7, and many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why? Why would priests become obedient to the faith? Well, priests, among other things, were called to take care of the poor in the Jewish community. They were the ones that were there to make sure that the poor had enough care, had enough food, that those who were injured or marginalized were included in the church. And when the priests saw what the church was doing, that they were caring for their poor better than the Jews were caring for their poor. The priests became obedient to the faith, not only because they believed the good news intellectually or the theology of the good news, they saw the theology in practice, and they saw the church loving the least of these in ways the Jews were not, and so they thought, well, this is true religion. This is true. And so we're going to become Christians. And so what do we pull from this? For Trinity Park Church. Well, first of all, I just want to give a tremendous shout out to our deacons. So I'm looking at at least one of them right in the back there, right behind the camera. And I'm so grateful for our deacons right now. I'm so grateful. Um, You you guys don't even know out there uh, how much the deacons have been doing in order to help us 
uh, understand our finances, understand our building, how we can get into this new property. They're also managing our setup and our teardown and all these different locations. There's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, and our deacons are doing a ton of that work. They're also making sure that there's some people in our church that are struggling economically right now, struggling financially, or having enough. And so I'm so grateful for our deacons. I'm so grateful for people that are helping our deacons on a lot of these teams. These teams are not just made up of deacons. Our setup teams are not just made up of deacons. They're made up of people who come alongside and assist the deacons. And we have tons of needs in the church during COVID-19. We have needs for everyone in the church to continue to serve in all their areas of giftedness. You know, deacons don't, when they sign up, they don't sign up to do all the work of the church they sign up to stir up the church to the work of ministry. And so that's what deacons are called to do, and they're doing a great job because they enable me and others like me to be able to continue to preach the word every Sunday, seven locations. I mean, you have no idea all the emails and all the conversations and text threads that have gone on to make Sunday happen and make the word, or Saturday happen, make Saturday happen so the word of God goes out unimpeded. And so praise God for what he's doing. Praise God for what he's doing in order to build unity among the officers of the church so that we can continue to bring the gospel. Praise God for all the the volunteers that are there. And so we need to ask the question, though, how can we continue to be obedient in this moment of COVID-19 as we're almost a year in and we're not done yet? How can we continue to be faithful? Well, we need to keep on communicating. You know, people are starting to get sick around here a little bit more than they were before. And some people are beginning to get COVID, and we need to to be in touch with people. We need to be in touch with people who are being quarantined because they're exposed to COVID, and, and they may not be able to get out and do the things that they could do, and we need to be able to serve them and bring them what they need in that case. We need to have open lines of communication. If someone is getting sick, or, or there's also people that are injured, and everything else is happening in life now too, not just COVID, and people have needs, and we need to be communicating we want to help and serve and meet those needs. We also have needs outside the church as well. We have needs uh, where we have folks in our community, your neighbors who are going to have needs. We would love to know about those needs so that we can consider what can we do? How can we help? How can we empower you to help your neighbors? If you're in our church, we don't know the economic impact fully of COVID. Uh, Some of the projections for 2021 aren't awesome. We don't know what's going to happen. But if you were to lose your job or lose some of your income, we want to know so that we can consider how to help you. What can we do to come alongside you in a time of need? This is important to the church, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because it matters to Jesus. It matters to Jesus that we would take the gospel and we would believe it and we would uh, be forgiven of our sins and we would be growing in grace and understanding how free we are in Christ and that we would channel that freedom out in a way that we serve and love one another in a united way that crosses all of those boundaries that the world is trying to cross, but only Jesus really has the answer to how to cross those boundaries. So, where do we go from here? Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've mentioned his six-part commentary series. It's about this long that he wrote on the book of Acts. In this particular section of Acts, which stretches in his commentary series from Acts, the end of Acts 5 through Acts 8, he calls it courageous Christianity. And in this moment, if you're a Christian, if you're at Trinity Park Church or you're a Christian in America, it is going to be required of you that you would be courageous. 
If you're not courageous, you're going to follow the words of the advisors in Psalm 11. You're just going to run to the mountains. You're just going to flee to the hills. You're going to flee to whatever. Whatever on social media, whatever uh, movement out there, whatever. You're just going to be rocked. But if you're courageous and you hold on to Christ, then you'll be able to step out boldly and hold on to what we believe, and you'll be able to navigate that in community, and you'll be able to practice your faith. I want to recall back to you the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Remember what he said. He said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And for you to live that way in a pandemic, in this moment in America, for you to actually say, for me, the meaning of my life is not my security economically. It's not my security as an American. It's not my security in my health. It's not the security of my children's future. My security is in Jesus. I'm going to hold on to him. So whatever was to my profit, I'm going to leverage it all for the sake of Christ. I'm going to go all in with Christ. I'm going to trust him in this moment. That's going to require courage. You're going to find in this world today, in America today, you're going to find a lot of Christians who do not act courageously, who do not really hold on to their faith, who hedge their bets, who give up on the basics of the Christian faith, the 101, which is Christ alone. Christ alone. That is our call right now, to hold on to Jesus alone in the midst of all this transition. That's our call as Christians, to, to value what matters to God even in the midst of this cultural moment. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by the examples of the early church, and yet we recognize that these men and women had only known you for a couple of months. And so it is not beyond us to practice the gospel in this way. It is certainly beyond us in our flesh, but with your spirit empowering our church, with us yielding the, the throne of our lives, the core and the center of our being to you, the Lord Jesus, we can follow you. And that's what we want to do. We do want to value those things that you value, God, but we confess how hard it is sometimes for us to trust in you, that, that we do have this deep propensity to want to hang on to those things that have profited us before. We have this desire to keep one foot on you and one foot on something else, just in case you can't hold us. And so we confess that, Lord, and we pray that you would enable us to trust in you, Lord. Help us to trust in you, Lord Jesus. You are our precious Redeemer, our Savior, and our friend. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's stand and sing together as we prepare to, prepare to go.
Please receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours today, world without end. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.